mission of Ag Arts is to imagine and promote healthy food systems through the arts. We do this in a number of ways. For example, this podcast, Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land, and your help, your donation funds our technical assistance, our website, our manager, and pays our rent here. We also do this through our Farm to Artist residencies. And on these residencies, artists do their work on farms, real working farms, and there they understand the issues of the farmers and reflect that in their art. Your funding keeps us alive. Please make a donation on our website, agarts.org, A-G-A-R-T-S dot O-R-G, or click the link in the show notes and hit that donation button. It's Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land, and I'm your host, Mary Swander. In this episode, we're looking back and reflecting on the last two years, how we survived, what we learned, how we grieved, and how we're recovering. We're going to begin with a story by farmer Kathy LaFrenz, owner of Miss Effie's Country Flowers near Donahue, Iowa. Kathy first told this story at the Practical Farmers of Iowa Conference in January, when I was privileged to be her coach. Here's Kathy LaFrenz. The author of Out of Africa, Karen Blixen, said, the cure for everything is salt water, sweat, tears, or the sea. Now, I live on the east coast of Iowa, so only thing I've got is a big muddy river, So my story is about sweat and tears. Meatloaf would have said, two out of three ain't bad. (laughs) In the summer of 2019, Lori and her daughter, Betsy, drove from Waukesha, Wisconsin, to visit Miss Effie's. It was Betsy's 16th birthday, and only thing she wanted was a Quad City birthday party. She wanted Whitey's ice cream, She wanted hungry hobo sandwiches, and she wanted to visit Miss F's. Now, they had been regular customers at Miss F's in the past years. They would swing in the swoopy swing. They would chase my ducks. They would play with my kittens, and Lori would pick buckets full of flowers to take home. It was a great way for a mom to relax out in the country on a hot summer day. Betsy even had her sixth birthday party on the farm. Lori and her sister Michelle took my corn zebo, which is an old corn crib, and they filled it full of crepe paper flowers. They had vintage tablecloths. They had antique dishes. It was the perfect little girl's garden party. At the right time, the little girls go parading through my garden, all dressed up in their Sunday best, with great big hats full of flowers and ribbons, and they had a wonderful time. Except it was 98 degrees with humidity to match. The ice cream melted, the frosting got sticky on the cupcakes, and those little girls wilted like the flowers in my garden. But it must have been memorable because Betsy wanted to come back in 2019 to celebrate her 16th birthday. As she danced through the garden, 
she declared this was a truly her happy place. My husband, Cliff, was working in the garden that day, actually prepping for a PFI field day out on the farm, and he was weeding and weeding and weeding. And she pranced past him and said, can I have my senior pictures taken here? And he turned and he said, of course you can, because that's one of the things we do. Lori and Betsy filled their car full of ice cream, full of sub sandwiches, and buckets full of flowers and headed up to Wisconsin again, having had a wonderful day on the farm. Our lives, Cliff's my life, was gonna change drastically within just a couple of weeks. I awoke in the middle of the night to hear Cliff gasping for air. And I rushed him to the ER. We spent four days in the hospital and they came back with, after several different diagnoses, they said, no, this is pneumonia. And came home with pneumonia and a new apparatus for the garden, an oxygen tank. The next three months were spent at doctor's appointments, one after another after another. We went through the entire alphabet of tests, the CT scans, the MRIs, the PET scans, and the x-rays. And finally, three and a half months later, we discovered that Cliff had lung cancer. He went downhill really, really fast. And we ended up at the University of Iowa Hospital. And on January 1st, the oncologist, it's her last day on the ward, she said, we're gonna throw a Hail Mary pass. Are you willing to try to catch it? And we said, yes. And they started an extremely aggressive form of chemotherapy that none of the other doctors thought was a good idea. Cliff did amazing. And on March 6th, we went in, had a CT scan, and the oncologist said, the tumors are shrinking. The plaque-like depo cancer deposit on the lung is going away, you might be making a, a cure. This is looking really good. 12 days later though, Cliff spiked a fever of 103 and I had to hash to Iowa City by ambulance. He had pneumonia again. And first we tried one antibiotic and then another and then another. Five antibiotics later, nothing was working. They put him in palliative care, and then they announced that it was time for hospice. And when they tell you that the person that you love more than anything in the world is dying, you try to cram in every conversation that you plan for the, last, the next 20 years into those very few days. We talked about our goals, we talked about our memories. We talked about how much we loved each other. And we talked about the farm. Now, Cliff was my head groundskeeper. He was the man that took every silly idea I ever had and not only made it work, he made it better. And I was crying and I said, I can't do this farm without you. 
And he said, you have to. There's a 16-year-old girl in Wisconsin that wants to have her senior pictures taken. Cliff died on April 2nd at the beginning of COVID. I was sent home brokenhearted to an empty house and quarantined because I had spent the last 15 days at the hospital and nobody knew what COVID was spreading and how it was going. So there was no funeral. There was no visitation. There was, I couldn't even go to his burial. And I would say I felt alone. I, I was alone. But I was surrounded with the sweat of my community. Matt and Alyssa, flower farmers from Davenport, created spreadsheets of all of my gardens and had people sign up to clean my gardens. Rebecca, right here in the front row, took half of my chickens. Bob, my beekeeper, built a compost bin system for me and created the potting shed that was only in my husband's mind and built it for me. The vegan cookbook club came out and planted all of my plugs and spread pallets full of mulch for me. John, Jim, and Doug, friends from our wine club, built the greenhouse for me. And when I said, why are you doing this for me? They said, we love Cliff as much as you do. I had ordered plugs for zinnias because I realized I wasn't gonna be able to seed anything. And I got bumped out of the zinnia order that year. Now you can't be a flower farmer in Iowa without having zinnias. And so I put a call out on Facebook and I said, hey, does anybody have any zinnias for me? Seven flower farmers bought trays of zinnias for me. I had every shape, every size, and every color of zinnia that is ever out there. It was fantastic. But there was one gal that knew I needed a kick in the ass to get out of bed every day. And my dear friend Connie that's here said, flowers will get you through this. But she had another problem. She sold to florists that year, and we all know there were no florist sales that year. She had flowers and no customers. I had customers, but no flowers. So we went together and formed a loose partnership that we did bouquets together and sold them. We did a CSA together and sold them. We taught classes. And we've got some ideas for this year that are really cool. If we can get them off the ground, we don't have Cliff to make this work, but we work on this. But I got by, I got through 2020. I got through 2021 and I'll get through 2022. And Betsy, you wanna know about Betsy? 
on a very hot day in August in 2021, Betsy came out and had her senior pictures taken on my farm. And there was salt water, lots of lots of salt water. Thank you. I made it through the last two years by lifting my binoculars to my eyes and studying the stars, really studying their pathways, the meteor showers, the constellations, and the shifting phases of the moon. My eyelashes brushing the lenses, suddenly I had the time and the darkness to take up this interest, one that I dabbled in throughout my 30 years of living in the country. But when the pandemic hit, stargazing seemed like the right thing to do. Looking up at the heavens put the troubles of the earth in better perspective. Just bending my head upwards was a mood elevator. The rest of the cosmos was still there in its right place, moving across the sky in a recognizable pattern. Even if down below we were in chaos, stuck in our houses in lockdown or quarantine. I live alone. Years ago, I had made peace with darkness, both physical and spiritual, darkness that I had longed for for years, but never quite reconciled with until it arrived. I'd lived in towns and bigger cities during my early adulthood when the night sky was merely a blur. Then I found this old one-room schoolhouse and fixed it up for a home. Ah, I thought, I'll be out in the country in the middle of the Amish neighborhood with very little light pollution. I was right. On clear nights with a new moon, the sky was jet black. I watched my first visible lunar eclipse through my binoculars in absolute awe. The Earth's dark shadow slowly spreading across the craters. But just when I was getting the hang of the night sky, new English neighbors moved in next door and put up a bright, shining yard light. I understood. Stu was a police officer and wary of every danger imaginable. Yet the light caused just enough pollution to obscure much of my view of Venus and Jupiter. Sometimes I'd sit on my porch and think, maybe I could get a BB gun. One swift shot to the light bulb. Well, maybe not. I like these new neighbors. Then a few years before the pandemic, my neighbors got a divorce. And the first thing Donna did was pull the plug on the yard light. 2020 progressed and I read that I wasn't the only one looking at the night sky. Telescopes and binoculars became scarce. Planispheres disappeared off of store shelves and from mail-order warehouses. Eyes wide open in the dark, I listened more acutely to the night sounds. The coyotes camp down at Picayune Creek that winds through the valley in this land of gently rolling hills. The barred owls call, who cooks for you? 
who cooks for you all? On spring mornings, I woke to a chorus of birds, all singing together to greet the world, oblivious to how very skewed that world had become. My Amish neighbors just let the virus rip, hoping their strong bodies would protect them and natural immunity would carry them down the road. After a short period of mandated lockdown, they reopened their schools and businesses, gathered outside for church, continued their weddings and funerals, and kept their buggies rolling along on the gravel. I waved to them from my yard, but soon the whole neighborhood was ill with the Wuhan strain of COVID. Children, parents, gross mommies, and gross daddies. I'm sure COVID took down some of the most frail Amish. No cause of death was ever mentioned in the obituaries in the paper, and I could no longer bike around the area to get the neighborhood news. But sadly, I could read between the lines. Between August through December, the cases grew, the death count rose in the country. More and more people I knew were in the hospital on ventilators or passing away from the virus. The weather turned colder, and I was looking through a glass darkly, attending COVID funerals on Zoom. A friend had gone to get her hair done on a Friday. The stylist had COVID, and my friend was dead the following Saturday. The computer screen reflected the light pouring through the stained glass windows of the church, only a handful of family members present. Friends sang pre-recorded hymns, and the priest gave a homily about the loaves and fishes, how this woman, this lovely woman, had welcomed multitudes into her home and fed them. At my home, the sun poured through the glass of the six-foot-tall windows in the schoolhouse, the drifts of snow piling up against the fences and in the ditch near the road. I zoomed into a Christmas service and cooked myself a turkey dinner. And then I looked in the mirror. Throughout the months, I had been trimming my bangs and sniffing off the ends here and there. I refused to go to the hairdresser. Don't cut your own hair, friends had warned me. It will turn into a mess. I thought I was doing fine with my little trim jobs, but when I peered into the mirror, I looked like Boris Johnson in the front and an Amish man in the back of my head. I found a pixie cut YouTube video with instructions. You needed to wet down your head and divide it into sections with long, thin clips. Clips, clips, what could I use for hair clips? I pulled out half a dozen binder clips from my desk drawer and petitioned my hair. Next, the video instructed me to use two mirrors to be able to see the back of my head. I would need both hands for cutting. 
Hmm. Finally, I set up a small handheld mirror in my cell phone holder attached to my tripod. Then I placed the tripod opposite the bathroom mirror. I unwound the chunks of hair from the clips and snipped. Okay, not bad. No gouges anyway. But irritating, itchy little hairs trickled down my blouse. I rewound the video. You must wear a tight-fitting bib around your neck. A bib. A bib. What could I use instead of a bib? I tried pinning a sheet around my neck, but it was too heavy and hampered my arms. I tried a tea towel, but it was too short. Oh, the heck with it, I thought, and stripped down naked and resumed snipping, my hair floating down to the bathroom floor. I swept up the ends and hopped into the shower to finish the job. 2021 brought the vaccine to the masses, and I was sure it would bring herd immunity and a return to normal life. But due to my medical condition, my doctor forbade me to get the shot. Yes, there are people who couldn't get the vaccine. So life continued behind glass for me. I stopped looking at social media. It was packed full of people boarding planes for vacations, off to Hawaii, off to Ireland, off to Mexico. Then the CDC said the vaccinated could remove their masks. No surprise. The vaccinated and unvaccinated all abandoned their masks. Life became even more of a minefield. I drove downtown to my office, parked in front of my building, hurried in, and locked the door. I sat at my desk and watched the parade of people pass by. Some peered through the plate glass window and waved. Others stopped to linger and read my window display. Others kept walking and talking, their muffled words washing over me. I learned the rhythms of downtown. When the newspaper editor tapped past my window with his cane to the bank, and when he tapped back. When the Amish men headed into the hardware store in time to turn around and head back home in their buggies for dinner. When the school children were dismissed in the afternoon, giggling their way to the coffee house for an ice cream cone. On Mondays, I did my own sightseeing. I drove through the area in my car from one Amish homestead to another. I stopped by to the side of the road and looked out my window to watch the laundry hanging out on the lines. Every Monday morning, Amish women start up their gas-powered Maytag washers, the antiques chug-chugging away in sheds. They wash and rinse, wash and rinse, finally feeding their clothes through the wringer and into their ideal metal tubs. Then it's off to the clothesline with a basket full of dresses and pants, shirts and jackets, diapers and baby clothes. Clothespins fasten the items to the line, and a little breeze lifts the pant legs and dress hems into the air, creating a snap and pop, a syncopated rhythm, the only dance the Amish will ever know. Sheets and pillowcases billow out into the air to the strains of the cardinal's whistle and the wren's trill. The 
free Martintown volunteer firefighters rang their bell and recommenced their pancake breakfast for the first time in two years. The line of hungry folks wound through downtown, loading up their plates with pancakes drenched in maple syrup tapped from local trees and sausage made by the old order. That night, the firefighters set off a fireworks display down by the Amish River. I drove to see the show, but when I encountered hundreds of people in lawn chairs bunched together on the bank, I decided to stay in my car and enjoy the display in a safe and socially distanced place. I pulled over to the side of the road and tilted my seat back, looking up into the dark night. The air was cool, too cool for this time in the spring. I shoved my hands into my pockets of my jacket to warm them. Red, green, and blue comets shot up over the river, cascading down into the water. Chrysanthemums spread out into the air above, leading a trail of sparks. Spiders were next, with hard shell bursts trailing, then falling and burning out. My favorites, the willows, were up again, their long gold stars fading slowly, so very slowly. I registered with every bang, crackle, and whistle. I took in every color, orange, yellow, and indigo. And I waited for the grand finale, a send-off for a volunteer who had passed away this last year, COVID hurrying things along at the end. His final wish, to have his cremation ashes wrapped in paper around Roman candles and blasted into the heavens. After an hour, the firefighter's request was fulfilled, his remains rising up, up, up into the sky toward the constellations, above the river, above all of us below, then raining down, bits of stars bursting, shattering all that we thought we knew of the patterns of the universe, spilling bits of ash on my windshield. And here's a poem called Novena from my book, Heaven and Earth House. Eye of potato, thin neck of cabbage arching out of the ground. I kneel here in late April and sprinkle ash on roots and stems. Ash of oak, ash of pine, ash of elm sifting into the dirt. Paper ash. Ash to keep moths from drilling through the leaves. Ash to keep stalks from curling up, slinking away. Ash of ash blown down in a storm, logs sawed and split. Logs I carry in my arms, while the warm ash waits through the winter, sinking to the bottom of the stove. Ash like snow, ash like skin. Cool ash, loose in the night 
settling in my lungs as I sleep, as I walk out into the dark, a bucket of ash in my hand, and in the morning, my face on the pillow in ash. The entries for the Great Mitt and Potholder Contest are starting to roll in, folks. Loopy potholders. No farms, no food potholders from all over the United States. Don't get left out. Go to agarts.org and make a submission. We need a photo, a few words about the potholder and its owner, and a $10 entry fee. You can win $100 and more prizes galore. You don't need to have made your potholder. It just needs to be in your possession. The judge, Susan Strawn, PhD in textiles and clothing, collector of potholders, currently residing on Bainbridge Island in Washington State. She's already wowed by the submissions. Go to agarts.org, scroll down to the Great Mitt and Potholder Contest, to be part of the fun and part of a digital exhibition. And that brings today's episode to a close. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brouhaha Audio Production and had the help of Colton Anderson, our intern from Central College. We had the support of the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation and the Calio Levine Fund, which also helps fund our farm-to-artist residencies. We welcome your support. Like and follow us at Facebook and Instagram. Become a premium member. Or go to our website at agarts.org, A-G-A-R-T-S dot O-R-G, and hit that red donate button. Thanks for your help, and we'll see you next time. Brouhaha. One swift shot to the light bulb.